I'm Sin Anaral, and this is The Digital Insider, where we get to the real hard science behind the digital economy and explore the latest trends in digital business and society with the world's leading thinkers and doers. Take two entrepreneurs with equal love and passion for what they do, equal commitment to the grind, equal access to resources, relationships, money, and equally good ideas. What will make one more successful than the other, other than those four things? I am enjoying the living shit out of the thoughtfulness of this interview. Only great question. Ready for the answer? Reps. The reason I'm unstoppable is because I punted school and did entrepreneurship from fucking six to 22, which is why I walked into my dad's liquor store as a child, 22, took full reins of operations, and in 25 seconds changed everything. I did lemonade stands and baseball card shows my whole life. I rang doorbells to wash cars and shovel snow. I got seven drillion no's and a couple of thousand yeses, which did two things. It taught me how to get a yes, and more importantly, it taught me how to be comfortable with a no. Welcome back to The Digital Insider. I'm Sin Anaral. My guest today is serial entrepreneur, five-time New York Times best-selling author, and one of the most highly sought-after public speakers in the world, Gary Vaynerchuk. Gary's considered one of the leading global minds on what's next in culture, relevance, and the internet. He's the chairman of VaynerX, the CEO of VaynerMedia, and the creator and CEO of vFriends. He's also a prolific angel investor with early investments in companies like Facebook, Twitter, Tumblr, Venmo, Snapchat, Coinbase, Uber. The list is long and storied. He's also the co-founder of Vayner Sports, Resi, and Empathy Wines. Now I have to start with an admission. I was a Gary Vaynerchuk skeptic. Not a hater exactly, but definitely a skeptic. He's brash, unapologetic, and uncompromising. And with best-selling book titles like Jab, Jab, Right Hook, and Crush It, you could be forgiven for mistaking his presence on social media for an infomercial. He's got trendy swipe-up animations on Instagram, bobblehead dolls, and Gary V cartoons. He seems at first blush a little gimmicky. You might also excuse my personal skepticism because he and I have several fundamental disagreements on, for example, the value of education, and the merit of telling kids they can be whatever they want. On second thought, maybe I was a hater. But I have to tell you, here and now, and loud and clear, I was wrong. Totally wrong. Well, not about education, but about whether Gary understands marketing. As I watched more of his Instagram videos, listened to his podcasts, perused his speeches online, and watched him curse his way through television interviews with flabbergasted reporters, I realized how wrong I was about him. As I went deeper into his content, half listening and half hating, at some point I realized he'd proven his point. He could in that moment rest his case about the value of his content, his advice, and his traveling circus, because he had succeeded in capturing and keeping the one thing he was after, my attention. How did he do it? Well, it turns out Gary Vee is not a gimmick. He's deeply philosophical on the core concept driving the digital economy. He'd argue it drives the entire economy. What he understands in practice better than anyone else I've seen about the nature of today's digital, social media-fueled economy is that it's fundamentally and inalterably 
an attention economy. Gary understands this concept and deploys it in real time, in business, every day, better than anyone I've ever met. In addition to running multiple businesses, Gary documents his life as daily CEO of all of these companies through his social media channels, which have more than 34 million followers and attract over 272 million monthly impressions and views across all of the platforms. His podcast, The Gary V Audio Experience, ranks among the top podcasts globally, period. Gary and I had an amazing conversation, riffing on topics like Web3, TikTok, consumer blockchain, entrepreneurship, and what it takes to be successful, as well as AI algorithms, and how positivity can take you a long way, not just online, but in everyday life. This episode was extremely impactful and inspiring for me, and I can't wait for you to listen. Remember to rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast, and share it with your friends and family. I hope you enjoy my conversation with Gary Vaynerchuk. How are you? I'm well. Yeah. You know, I, um, I'm in the office, uh, which I have not been at all. We, we're not all the way back in any shape or form, barely anyone here, but I'm starting to sense that it might be time. You know, everyone's healthy and lots of challenges and fun stuff and things are good. The world's evolving and... I like when things are changing, social media is changing, consumer behavior is changing, distribution is changing, so I'm excited. Awesome. What are you most excited about in the world right now, in business and personal in the world, like the one thing that jazzes you up the most right this second? Well, I mean, I talk very little about my personal life, but like no question the maturity of my children is like by far, like them becoming like very real people is like disproportionately the most interesting thing, but to keep it in context that I think will bring value to people on this interview and call, like the the fact the world's changing so much. You know, I'm best in chaos. I'm a purebred entrepreneur. I have great consumer intuition. I'm comfortable in change. And I like when change is happening. The fact that the average TikTok star is more famous than a primetime actor on an NBC show right now, and people don't really like the establishment doesn't realize that. But the like I like, you know, the fact that like not everybody is aware of what brands are cool, what car- what musicians are like, like knowing the pulse and then distribution, right? Like people's attention going to YouTube shorts or OTT or, you know, TikTok where things like Instagram are now mature and not emerging, that stuff. Yeah, just watching TikTok sort of become how Netflix disrupted the primary content industry and Netflix poured so much money into content and TikTok became more valuable than Netflix almost overnight in a business sense by not paying for content, but giving a microphone to the world uh, and allowing creators to, to be there. Yeah, I think, you know, curation and platform are two great ways. And I think TikTok and Netflix are the contemporary winners of what, you know, call it HBO and Facebook of 2012 was winning, right? HBO would curate content and they were the big winner. And Facebook gave the world pages and fan pages or Twitter. And here we are 10 years later. And to your point, that same game of being on either side of the coin, either be the platform that allows people to fill the pipes or be a distribution platform that fills the pipes by spending money and being good at it are two very interesting different games. And I think they'll always be winners in both sides of that equation. 
Yeah, I mean, sticking with with the platforms, you know, you you once said that you built your career on attention arbitrage, right? Essentially investing in attention on up and coming platforms when attention is cheap there and then switching to the newer platforms when the price per reach or engagement on those platforms increased. So uh, what what did you mean by that? And how do you and, and the Vayner brand approach the attention economy and attention arbitrage? It's the only thing that I think about. Really? Really. I'll tell you why. Understanding what you just broke down that I've spoken about in clarity at times is that quote or in innuendo as I do on a daily basis. There really is nothing else. It's the reason John F. Kennedy beat Richard Nixon in the election because television was a different medium than radio. It's the reason Obama and Trump both won their elections. It's the reason uh, Michael Jackson and Madonna were the biggest pop stars in the world because they understood the value of MTV when Elton John and the Rolling Stones didn't. And I can give you 74 billion other examples and I just gave you a couple off the top of my head in four seconds. Nothing matters more than understanding where the actual attention is versus where the perceived attention is. And the perceived attention is usually garnered by the icons and leaders of the world, the establishment where they want to see it. I'll give you a great one. Sports team owners want to see television commercials to feel like their league is relevant right now. Yeah, it was relevant to them when they were kids. The 65 to 80 year old, the 58 to 80 year old current sports owner from the English Premier League to the NHL, NFL, NBA, MLB, and everything in between want to see billboards and television spots to feel as if they're communicating their sport. While 90% of their audience is consuming it here. That is perceived attention is on billboards and television versus actual attention is on TikTok and Twitter and Spotify and Netflix, right? Yep. That is the only thing that matters if you're trying to grow. And it's the most dangerous thing if you're declining without realizing it. If you're the incumbent. Where's the next Where's the next attention arbitrage opportunity? No idea. Really? I, yeah, I'll tell you why. What about vFriends? What about NFTs and Web3? Yeah, I think, I think Web3, I think Metaverse in an Oculus or something like it is clearly an opportunity. The reason I say I have no idea is, even though I'm very aware of what AR and VR could do to the attention economy, speaking to it from a timing standpoint is not appropriate right now because it leaves me in a very vulnerable spot of being wrong. Whereas what I like doing is nobody was louder about TikTok four years ago than me, literally nobody. As a human being saying, this is what you should do, it is incredibly well documented that 48 months ago, 36 months ago, that, that I was the loudest. And that feels great because I was right, not because I understood that TikTok was coming, it was that it already had been there. Okay, well, I'll give you an out. So you have, you have clearly said 95% of projects in the NFT space are going to zero, but you're also bullish on the space. So what's the there there well, in the NFT well, that has nothing to do with attention. Right. No, I agree. NFTs has nothing to do with attention, which is why I kind of took the conversation where I took it. If we want to veer, which I love yeah, doing, veering. I'm, 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 I'm coming right in with you. All right. The there there is the technology. The consumer blockchain and what an NFT actually allows something to happen 
allows for things to happen that the internet and the analog world do not allow, which is a contract in perpetuity that is non-manipulable and universally accepted is a profound technology shift at scale. <laughs> so what is an NFT? Uh, behind me, right? Including friends. I don't know if people are listening or watching, but I have a lot of collectibles, right? I have um, sports cards and comic books and all sorts of collectible toys. Disney today on eBay, today on eBay, Disney will probably transact. I um, By the way, for everyone's listening, I'm gonna make this number up because I have no clue. But my intuition is millions of dollars of Disney collectibles will sell on eBay today. So not today, millions. Let me tell you who will make money in that transaction. The person that bought that Mickey Mouse toy at a garage sale for five bucks and sold it for 30. eBay with all their service fees as being a middleware. FedEx, UPS, right? All will take money. You know who will not make a penny on it? Disney. Think about that. Mm. Now project 30 years from now where Disney, V Friends Corporation, and every other intellectual property and artist, Andy Warhol's painting is going to sell tomorrow at Christie's. Who's going to make money? Christie's, the current owner of the Andy Warhol piece, right? The armed truck that is going to ship it to Morocco, right? Who's not? The Andy Warhol family. Mm. The consumer blockchain and NFTs thus because of it, if it just enables the originators of art and intellectual property to keep significant percentages in perpetuity of the intellectual property and the demand creation that they are able to create is a profound shift in commerce of the magnitude that is almost impossible to comprehend. However, that is only one sliver of what a consumer blockchain can do. For example, going to I'm going to the Jets game on Monday night. I'm gonna get into that stadium using a QR code. That is currently today a more advanced technology than what I did when I was a teenager, which is I would take a piece of paper and give them a ticket. In between, they put a barcode on that ticket that they would scan so they couldn't counterfeit. Literally, as a child, people would make counterfeit tickets to sporting events, literally. That doesn't exist anymore because of barcodes. Now it doesn't exist anymore because of QR codes. I believe easily within the next decade, we will see ticketing go to QR codes, excuse me, to NFTs. Here's why. Going back to eBay, if everybody who's listening right now goes to eBay and searches collectible tickets, ticket stub, Ticket stub, enter. You see where I'm going, right, brother? Absolutely. That, that's how you sell tickets to your conference, right? That's right. Well, I wanted to create, that's the other thing. Back to the smart contract, I wanted to have more valuable, I wanted to have something valuable for people while I was building the intellectual property. If, if I'm successful in building Transformers, Pokemon, Disney, all the owners of these NFTs will play out to be winners because if you bought 100 copies of Superman, action comics number one in the 30s because you thought Superman was going to be big over the next 50 years, you would be a quadrillionaire. So, but in the short term, I knew that there'd be ups and downs. We're living in a down right now. There's a bear market. I thank you for saying it because I want to make sure nobody forgets. I said 95, 98, 99, depending on the mood I was in on an interview, but it was always minimally 95, are going to zero. But 
the two to three percent were going to be the, you know, the Pokemon, the Transformers, the Tom and Jerry's and Snoopy's and Hanna Barbera's. And so that's what I'm on. But in the short term, I need time. Nobody cares right now about intuitive iguana, right? Or major moth. I have comic books, toys, movies, trading cards. I got a lot of work to do. So I said, I've got to bring more value than just the collectible or the long-term utilities. Because when I have an amusement park in 15 years, like Six Flags or Bush Gardens or God willing Disney World, well, the original NFT holders could have lifetime passes for free. That's pretty cool. I have building to do. In the short term, I've known that everyone's wanted for me because I read my emails, a super business conference, my Davos, my my South by Southwest, my Coachella, and that is what VCon was. And so when I sold the original VFriends series ones, it came with a three-year ticket to VCon. We had a very, very successful VCon one, which I think sets us up extremely well for VCon two and we'll get going. Yeah, that's great. And Andreessen Horowitz, you may have just answered this, but Andreessen Horowitz just invested $50 million in the seed round for VFriends. What can we expect for what's to come with that project? Like, what's your vision there? Is it the building out the value on uh, yeah, yeah. all of those characters? And yeah. Animation's expensive. Theme parks are expensive. Uh, and very much, I'm a businessman. And I, you know, when we negotiated that, I was incredibly concerned about the global economy. I have a very expensive staff building out this work. I mean, VCon was an eight-figure execution. It cost a lot of money to rent out an NFL stadium for four days, build a $3 million stage. Like, it costs money. And so I wanted to have a rainy day fund, uh, and I'm happy we're doing that. And and honestly, it's also smart money. You know, Chris Dixon, Chris Lyons, Mark Andreessen, Brad Hart. These are prolific businessmen and women that you know, have already helped me in legal conversations, in tokenomics for the future, in relationship making. And so I'm incredibly excited about um, about that relationship. Yeah. Do you think, uh, so like the decentralization piece of Web3, do you think Chris Dixon is right in touting the potential for decentralization? Or do you think Jack Dorsey's right in that it's going to be just concentrated like Web2? I think they're both right. You think it's going to be a little of both? Yeah, I think Chris is right because now the technology exists and it didn't before. Thus, people that are more creative, more ideological have options now. You know, I wish Earth had an entire landmass that was equal to the landmass of the Earth where people who don't like any governments could go and live and be happy and play out their experiment. That's what I think is happening between Jack and Chris Dixon's debate here. People who want to be purely decentralized, Bitcoin, it's living. But let there be no confusion. Jack's absolutely right. Web3, as most people call it, is predominantly Web 2.5. You know, OpenSea is not decentralized. Right. Right? I mean, look at even me, VFriends. You've got a whole world, Board Ape, where they give ownership to the holder. You've got Kevin Rose with Moonbirds giving creative commons. Everybody can have ownership. And those are both two very powerful ideas. And then you've got me who's so obsessed with doing Walt Disney, with doing character creation, Hanna-Barbera. I want to be Jim Henson. And I can't give you or Dustin commercial rights because you might fuck up the innovative Impala from the vision that I have. I don't think Board Ape is wrong or right with their ownership to the holder. I don't think Kevin Rose 
is right or wrong with Creative Commons. And I don't think Gary Vaynerchuk is wrong with being fully in control of the IP. I think all three can flourish 5% of the time. And I think all three will fail 95% of the time. So, I mean, the, the consumer blockchain obviously powering all of this. Uh, there's a lot of hurdles right now, obviously. Transaction costs are high, transaction volumes are low compared to, say, like a Visa. What are the key innovations that are required to create mass viability in that space? Is it off-chain? Is it like lightning-type stuff? Or The biggest innovation is a four-letter word called time. More than the brilliance of the young men and women and old men and women that come up with less frictionist less friction and getting normal people to understand and layering web two dynamics on the back of web three where you can pay with fiat and convert to you know crypto and all the things that are so clearly going to happen and are happening if you are halfway thoughtful and are spending time paying attention and not just reading headlines. All of this is happening. I, listen, you know this, back to Andreessen Horowitz. <laughs> Nobody knew how to get on the internet in the 90s until Mark Andreessen made Netscape Navigator. Like the browser did not exist. There was the internet and the browser. The thing that, there's nobody in my office see a bunch of running around 25 years old that think about Google Chrome as anything other than oxygen. That was a profound innovation 30 years ago that allowed normal people like me who, who were normal people, not tech savants to get on the internet. Today, remembering your seed phrase, understanding what a custodial is, authorizing by clicking a contract that steals your shit instead of, this is all the wild, wild west that always happens when profound. You know, I love when people are like, this shit is all, I was like, this is exactly the tell that it's big. Remember when your parents wouldn't put their credit card into the- I was just gonna say that. I was just gonna say that. I remember that was the tell. That's when I knew it was gonna be big. That, that people were scared to put their credit card in, yet many others did. You know, for me, I like this moment right now. I think we're in this place where a lot of the get rich quick scheme hustlers are leaving because they can't make as much money. It's becoming, you know, it's another, I really like this. I think the thoughtful builders are now, like I am putting in more effort, not less during this bear market. And so it's a fun time, but I think the biggest innovation, my friend, is just time. Like there was nothing, that was gonna be more powerful in 2000 when the entire internet stock market crashed. When everyone was like, what's gonna happen? For the people that believed the way I did then, what do we need to do to make sure this gets people to buy on the internet? The answer was time. It's generational. There's, it it's like every single 14 year old in the world has been built as a human being on the back of Minecraft, Roblox, NBA 2K, gaming, Candy Crush, virtual good like it, they don't even know any different yeah no you're right and some of them don't know the history of back in the day either so i i speak to a lot of young executives and you know i try to throw back to oh man you know like that reminds me of snow crash you know and they're like oh what's that i've never read that i don't even know what you're talking about oh i was talking to tim berners lee the other day who's that I have no idea who that is, you know? And so- History, you're gonna like this. This is a really good time to say this. So this is my report card. I was an atrocious student, but if you look at it, amongst all the D's and F's, these are literally, just so you can see it, actual D's and F's. I don't know if you see. Mm -hmm. Something very much stands out. Sophomore year, my only B was in Northwestern Worlds 
Western world history. Junior year, all Ds, but I got a B in drawing, B friends, even though I know a lot of people make fun of me for it, but I also got a B in Cold War history and world wars, right? And it goes on, same thing happened senior year, like, and same thing happened freshman year. History will always tell you the future. Yeah, it's funny you say that because I do. I think that they would benefit from that. But I also think that the future invented without the burden of history is is also different than the future invented with the incumbent's view of what happened. So they they can think of things that are unburdened by the, the, the... I love you for saying that. I have a saying I'm obsessed with, which is fresh eyes are dangerous eyes. Right. Yeah, exactly. My lack of... I actually am very passionate about history from a macro human psychology, but one of the reasons I've been able to be a very successful entrepreneur, and I'm comfortable saying that, is actually grounded in lack of knowledge. Let me give you an example, in the meta. I'm sitting in my office right now at Vayner. We're 13 years in. I've really been running it for 11. First two years was really more my brother. I was still doing the liquor store thing. We are undoubtedly one of the one or two largest independent advertising agencies in the world. There's just no debate. Size of revenue, size of people, global. When I tell you I knew nothing, that would be the word I use, nothing about the history or the actual current state of the advertising industry when I started this company, that is the truth. I didn't know how the divisions worked. I didn't know what, all I knew was what we started this conversation with, which was if Pepsi and the NHL and Campbell's and GE, our early clients, did not get Twitter and Facebook accounts, they were gonna leave opportunity on the table. And that's to your point. As long as all the kids that we're trying to inspire, when I say kids, I mean creative kid thinking, the 52 year old looking to transition into their new job. That to me is a kid, a creative like new set. If we can inspire them to solve problems that they clearly see and not overvalue of how everybody tried to solve it, they will create some of the most important innovations of all time. I can't wait. I'm super excited like you are about everything that's going on. This is the most, I'll tell you, this is the most fun because when I was betting on the internet and when I was betting on social media, nobody knew who the fuck I was. This one's a lot of fun for me because this is now, a year ago, I'm a hero. I'm a genius. Now, for a lot of people watching where the NFT market is, they're laughing or snickering or saying jokes behind the back. That's my favorite. This is the underestimated moment. Right. There's only one foregone conclusion to what happens with NFTs. They will be a significant part of all of our lives. Yeah, there's no- They're just not gonna look the way, you know, when I thought the internet was gonna be a significant part of our lives in 1995, it was very much based around information. I would never have to go to the library again. There was a lot more, but it was enough for me to get curious. And then I realized, which is why I launched the e-commerce site in 1996, that it was gonna change the way people bought things. The way information, the way communication, and the way that people bought things was going to be changed forever by the internet. What the internet did for communication, the blockchain is about to do for transactions. Yeah, I think that's a very good way to put it, actually. What about, so one thing I've been thinking a lot about recently is um, thinking a little bit more in depth about scarcity. Mm. Because essentially you know, uh, you've got this situation where it's a huge factor for NFTs because digital goods are infinitely copyable in the same fidelity, in high fidelity an infinite number of times. Like the cost of reproducing a digital good is zero, but the value of an NFT is that it's a validated ownership of something that is potentially unique or low in number, right? 
But there's a lot more important strategy, I think, to be invented around scarcity. So I've been talking, say, to uh, Artifact, which was purchased by Nike. And the whole concept even in Bored Ape and so on of having, you know, various characteristics of characters and having them, some of them be super rare, some of them be rare, some of them. And then now scarcity isn't binary. It's not like scarce or not scarce or abundant. It's sort of like this product has N dimensions. Some of them are scarce. Some of them are kind of rare. Some of them are very common, you know. And so the digital strategy of conceptualizing scarcity and maintaining sort of luxury good pricing and branding where but at the same time scaling, which is now possible because these are digital goods on the cost side. I mean, what do you think about that? I think a lot about it. It's I actually think supply and demand is the one natural gift I have. So let me take an interesting counterpoint uh, not a counterpoint, actually. Let me add a additive point that I think people are paying attention to. Mm. I believe, and I was very thoughtful. I loved what you just said, by the way. So kudos to your thinking. I believe smart people like you are spending way too much time on supply and that the punchline to everything is demand. So let's talk it out. I think if you look at Friends, I think the thing that people don't pay attention to is series two has 55,555 units and has maintained stronger during this period of time than a lot of the projects that have 10,000 because that was became the magic number because of CryptoPunks history. But you, uh, Dustin, who's filming right now, great guy on my team, creative guy. Like I, I have a lot of fondness for him. Uh, if he made an NFT today and made six of them, six, very scarce. I do not believe the price of those things would be more valuable than my hundreds of thousands between book games, Be Friends 1, Be Friends 2, mini drops. I believe that a lot of people have spent so much time on manufacturing thoughtful strategy around scarcity and supply, but that most people do that because they are incapable of creating demand. Well, maybe, I mean, you've just brought it right back to the attention economy where we started. Right. And That's so right. And, then, a- and then it becomes the story economy, right? Like Hansel and Gretel, Tom and Jerry, Fred Flintstone, those things accomplished the ability. I, I don't want to get too political here, but religion. Yeah. Lore. Okay. Zeus. Like, is Zeus real? But everyone knows what Zeus is. And then how about just historical figures? Do we re- like, I don't know. I grew up my whole life thinking Christopher Columbus was the greatest in my childhood. And the narrative changed. Story. It is, to your point, yes, there's the marketing part of actually knowing how to market to create demand, which I would argue 99% of brands and I put NFT projects in there struggle heavily in a 2023 environment. B, a completely separate thing is even if you got the whole world to watch your Super Bowl commercial, are you good enough to tell a story in 30 seconds to get people to give a shit about the humbled hedgehog? Right? Am I going to be good enough? When I sit with you and talk and I look at the humble hedgehog and the caring camel, my ability to make video games, my ability to do children's books, my ability to do trading cards, all of that is going to be the ultimate variable of the upside against my ability to be as great as anybody on the attention economy from a marketing standpoint. The attention, the fact that I built VaynerMedia for myself, which is now manifesting with BeFriends, and I'm who I've been for the last 30 years, puts me in a no-lose situation with BeFriends because I'm always going to be able to create enough demand just on that scale. If I'm right, 
that I also have Dr. Seuss, Jim Henson, Vince McMahon, Walt Disney, uh, the the people behind the woman, the amazing woman behind Barney. Like if I have that skill too, on top of, well then over the next 25 years, something crazy is gonna happen. That's That's a really interesting and great way to look at it. I think I completely agree with you. I think that attention maybe is undervalued when supply is overvalued in terms of strategic thinking these days, that's uh... It's because people can manipulate and strategize and put pen to paper to control supply, but to create demand is the most merit-based truth on earth. And it's not just marketing. It's not taking the product that you have and marketing it at all. Do you know what I say a lot to a lot of our clients in a pitch? If I don't believe in the product after I hear what they're about, I go, you don't want to hire us. We're so good at marketing. We're going to speed up the world realizing your product sucks. <laughs> That's if great. I can get everybody over the next 10 years on the TikTok or Instagram or Facebook or, or Netflix commercials of the day to know everything about vFriends. If I'm not good at making the vFriends thing interesting after you've become aware of it, I'm going to lose. It's why Super Bowl commercials fail. Everyone sees them, but if it's not good, you lose. It's why TV shows that get a prime slot, right? Whatever show NBC in the 90s wanted to be a hit that they put after Friends because the lead-in was so remarkable. The reason that show didn't win is because the show didn't win, but the fucking opportunity was there. So what if you, let's say you were Zuck, how would you change Facebook? Well, let's say you were Adam Masari, how would you change Instagram? Let's say you were Jack Dorsey or... Parag Agarwal or Elon, how would you change Twitter? Pick pick any of those or all of them and give give the platform leaders some direct advice. I think every one of those platforms that would put Snap in there as well need to take a very specific nuanced thing out of TikTok, only one. TikTok, and it's starting to change because supply and demand of attention. TikTok did not cap your upside of the creative regardless of how many followers and how much work you put in. It could have been your first day three years ago and you could have made a really good coffee video for TikTok and you could have got 93 million views and that could have changed your trajectory. The cap of upside of the variable of the quality of your creative that the other platforms have in stream is their great vulnerability and their great opportunity. If tomorrow my Instagram videos did not play in the same general range of 400,000 to 1.5 million, per view and it looked more like 8,000 views and 8 million views, everything would change for Adam. Yeah, that's such a great suggestion. And you see Instagram starting to go in that direction. They're realizing this. There's a fundamental design difference between TikTok and the rest of them where your networks of followers and so on, it's not a digital social network. It's a a series of channels that anybody can watch anything. And I think it's, you know, I think publicly I saw this, you know, I don't, pay enough attention to this because I just stay in the dirt and create and learn from the real thing. But I did hear from my platform team here at Vayner in a report, I caught it, which I always skim, so I was pumped I caught this, that Facebook meta, excuse me, meta, I think has come out and actively said that going forward, virality, AKA outside your network that you follow content was going to go from, and I might be making this up, but my brain says from 15 to 35% of your feed. So that means they're already going in that place. I think the holy grail is pure merit. I think the next, and I don't think TikTok is fully there. I think the next version that disrupts TikTok literally looks like seven views and 9 million 
in back-to-back posts by the same person and brand, if you can get to 100% merit based on whatever algorithm, quantum qual metrics you use and every other thing, how long they say on the post, every whatever your algo is, whoever masters that is gonna really intoxicate the world of brands and influencers and creators. Yeah, you're right. And the algorithm is gonna be very key there because it needs to be able to be good at figuring out what is really going to be liked and engaged with because that's what's gonna be shown. What the AI and the algos are gonna be able to do though is even if the algo makes the assumption that it's gonna be good, it still has the next human that consumes it to make it smarter. I I can tell you for sure that I've seen content in my life when I've stumbled into like paying attention to it of my own that starts off ripping hot and calms down versus starts off ripping hot and gets crazy. And when I look at it subjectively, when I think about the 10, 15 piece of content I'm thinking about right now, it makes sense to me. The one that went universally does make more sense to me that it was working versus, listen to what I said, it's very careful, versus the other half that didn't go there, I think really worked for my audience that was already built in, but was less universal. Mm. You see where I'm going? Yeah, yeah, totally. My assumption is properly the algo, this is mainly meta and Instagram, understood like, oh, this is working for my people, thus it's working. Oh, wait a minute, as it's going broader, people that don't know Gary don't give a shit as much. And so I I think that game is gonna really matter. Everything keeps going further towards merit. SoundCloud and Spotify is more merit than paying off radio stations and MTV to play your shit. Can we unpack merit for a second? Because you've also said that negativity is louder than positivity. Yes. Basically, hate outmuscles love online. We've kind of found the same thing in a 10-year study of Twitter. We found that false news spreads farther, faster, deeper than the truth. And so when we think about merit, people are being are engaging with a lot of toxic content, obviously, online, right? And, and so how do we change that? Right. Is it just getting happy, truthful humans to be louder? Uh, is that the simple answer or what do we do? The complicated answer is we need a remarketing of parenthood. So the world's currency of humanity is predicated on using fear as a weapon and that starts at home. The reason we're conducive to it, to politicians, is because our parents deployed it from the beginning. You're speaking to a dad, so I'm hearing you. Brother, this shit has got me going like you can't imagine. I am the byproduct of a mother who fucking, it's so emotional for me, it's like tough to even talk about publicly. I'm literally writing a book called Perfectly Parented. Of course, I mean, I could sit here for six hours and tell you what my parents did wrong, but they so did right on accountability and and loving and cheering for the right things. My, My mother didn't, she punished me for bad grades, but there was never a day where I thought my self-worth was tied into my schoolwork. My self-worth was tied into the things she cheered about and made important, which was how I treated other human beings. When, uh, I mean, these are real stories of my life. When somebody would fall and trip and be hurt while we were playing in the eighties, nobody thought about any of these feelings and ideas. And I would stop playing and I would run over and care about the kid. That's the story my mom would talk about over dinner, right? When when I would stand up for the kid that was getting picked on, that's what my mom, not my parents overvalue grades, which teaches kids to believe in systems that grade you subjectively every hundred days. Parents overvalue other parents' opinion of their kids, 
which teaches kids to value other people's opinions. Parents use fear to stop kids from doing things that they're scared of. I'm scared shitless of dogs and water. This is real. I, Gary, at 46, deep down, am not super comfortable around dogs and I fear the water. Why? Because my mom did. And it's one of the few things I have fear around because it's one of the few things that my mom instilled fear around. If you're getting a B, you will work for a company your whole life. We are working, you know, this is not Facebook. I love when everyone's like, Zucks, Zucks my asshole. People want to blame the algorithm, social media, politicians, governments. We have no level of accountability. Parents shit on technology all day long. And then the second that they're having a good time drinking wine, they give the iPad to the kid because they don't want to be bothered. Parents, hypocrisy at scale. Parents being way too involved in their kids, thus overprotecting them, thus telling children that they don't trust them to be able to handle their own shit has led to the moment we are in. And until we accept that truth, until the older millennials, Gen Xers, or boomers that shit on Gen Z when they're the ones who parented them, until they become accountable for their shortcomings, and until we teach Gen Zers, don't do what we did, play it different, We'll just have a perpetual machine of insecurity. When you when you give advice to young people, you often uh, encourage them to go for their passions, to start businesses, to start you know flipping, trading, you know to to tinker and try things out. So take two entrepreneurs with equal love and passion for what they do, equal commitment to the grind, equal access to resources, relationships, money and equally good ideas. What will make one more successful than the other other than those four things? I heard, by the way, by the way, I'm, I just need to say this because I'm, I'm more into rose giving, giving roses while people are alive. I am enjoying the living shit out of the thoughtfulness of this interview. I love it. I'm so this happy question, to hear that. Profoundly great question. Ready for the answer? Yes, I'm totally ready. Reps, reps. Yeah, you could talk about exercising all day long, right? Reps, the reason I'm unstoppable is because I punted school and did entrepreneurship from fucking six to 22, which is why I walked into my dad's liquor store as a child, 22, took full reins of operations, and in 25 seconds changed everything. You know why? Because I was a fucking all pro hall of fame, all star seasoned fucking veteran at 22, because I, and don't forget what I did. This is why I like a lot of people getting jobs at retail in their youth. When you get that much human interaction, you get to learn. I did lemonade stands and baseball card shows my whole life. I rang doorbells to wash cars and shovel snow. I got seven drillion no's and a couple of thousand yeses, which did two things. It taught me how to get a yes, and more importantly, it taught me how to be comfortable with a no. I love it. I love it. You know, my son started his first lemonade stand this summer, Lefty's Lemons, because he's a le- he's a lefty. I love it. Branded it. Yeah, Lefty's Lemons. We're gonna make merch, so get ready. You're gonna. See I want a I want a t-shirt. I will. I'm telling you right now. You email me. I'm a medium t-shirt. Make it soft because I don't like the hard shit. Yeah. And I will fucking rock that t-shirt. Okay, 100. Uh, you're, it's coming. It's coming. Last question. Yes. Last yeah. question. When you think of all the people you've known in business and the people you've come across who always seem to be one step ahead of the innovation curve, the ones that you can pick out that you know who are just like, 
Man, that person is always one step ahead. What traits stand out to you as common among those people? Some sort of concoction. If I made like a, if I blended it and made like a smoothie, uh, and I'm thinking about people like Kevin Rose, Scott Belsky, you know, uh, Mike Lazaro, Aaron Battalion. Like, I went to school with Mike. I love it. So the, those individuals that popped in my head right away, Britt Morin, uh, is they have a mix. Here's here's the here's the shake tons of yes dna that's probably like the banana that's like the core yes dna the answer to anything is hey what about nfts yes what about virtual reality yes what about going to mars yes it's yes comma let me dig in a world where almost everyone's no that is a similar thing and it's maybe the same exact thing but i'll say it a little bit differently so a bunch of yes a bunch of curiosity they even get into those conversations by being curious right i was at a dinner the other day I know nothing about mining, like mining for materials like nickel and diamonds. And I listened for two hours, I'm a talker, and listened for two hours, peppered this guy with a ton of questions. My basis of like thinking about buying land around the world now for mining is like now gone from zero to it's in my purview and maybe in seven years I'll get deeper and maybe something will happen, right? V Friends is the byproduct of buying pop culture items at garage sales my whole life. That was the smoke. V friends was the fire. So yes, curiosity, being an athlete versus being a person in attendance watching an athlete. That would be the third characteristic. What does that mean? You're comfortable with people booing you on your home field constantly. I'm a Knicks and Jets fan. I go to a lot of games. Those players get booed at home a lot. <laughs> the ability to have the skin to be booed. I am booed every single day on Twitter and, and Instagram and TikTok. That is being drowned out by a lot of cheering because I'm doing well and I'm a good guy. But there's still tons of booing, which cripples people. And it cripples them in making content and it definitely cripples them in being an entrepreneur because when your company fails or when you're wrong about the next big thing, everybody makes fun of you. And if you can't deal with the no's and the boos, then you're finished. Hmm. So it is a thick skin to being willing to be wrong it's being a baseball player. You're willing to go three out of 10 because you know that gets you in the Hall of Fame. Most people want to just sit and watch you play baseball and judge you for being three of 10. I love it. I really, really appreciate this conversation, Gary. Thank you for saying that earlier. I feel the same way. Thank you, brother. I learned a ton. I uh, can't wait to, to talk to you again. And thanks for all the time. We really, really appreciate it. Love you, pal. Take care. Bye-bye. The Digital Insider with Sanana Ral is brought to you by the MIT Initiative on the Digital Economy. Hosted by Sanana Ral, produced and edited by Carrie Reynolds. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Share today's episode and tag us on social media at MIT underscore IDE. To leave a voicemail for Sanan for the chance to have your question answered live on air in a future episode, call 617-468-468. 8423, or you can email gmail.com. Visit our website, ide.mit.edu slash podcast for more.